0: I'll keep talking. Better? No, no good. Keep trying. No. Plan B? It's good. See, all you need to do is swing the microphone around and it makes everything come on. No, not quite, not quite. Great, thanks James for getting us organised there. Great song, Gabs, to finish up with. It's a very old song but it's got some timeless truth in that. As you uh, sing that, it really does... Um, uh, build something into your heart and your soul that is well with my soul, despite whatever circumstances I'm going through because of what Christ uh, has achieved for us. So uh, that is a wonderful blessing that we can sing that. Before we go any further, uh, last week we uh, had our last talk in Philippians, and that was um, about generous giving. And we did hand out some commitment cards. So for those of you who weren't here last week, Doug, can I just get you to grab those? So if you didn't get a card last week and you were a regular attender here at Exchange... Uh, Jane wants one too, behind you there, Doug.
1: Hey boy.
0: <laughs> if you could just grab one of those. Um, it's just helpful for us here at Exchange as we get an idea, uh, doing our budgeting going forward, To um, as you make a pledge of commitment to your generosity towards the church. Uh, if you're just a visitor today, you can feel free to take a card, but don't feel obligated at all um, to do that. But for those who are... Regulars and Connected here at Exchange, we would love you to take one so we can help sort of do our planning uh, going forward. And I would encourage, I don't normally self-promote myself, but I would like you to, if you're able to, click on um, the sermon we had last week, uh, which sort of talks about that. Um, you might have, some of you might have done that and found a really soft recording. Did anybody find that? Um, I found out through the week that some things hadn't been quite right, so I've actually re-uploaded again to make it right again, so you will be able to hear it this time, hopefully a lot more clearer. So if you can do that and hand the card back over, you can just drop it in the box over the next few weeks and that'll help us um, as a board going forward just planning and uh, working things out from there. Sorry, I'll just wake up my iPad. Okay, today uh, we start a new series. Sorry, contraptions going left, right and centre here. Because we've got problems with our um, recording, I've got to do a part B. Good. Okay, today we start a new series, uh, one where I ask people to um, send into me uh, questions or uh, passages from the Bible where you've read through something and uh, you've looked at it and looked at it again and perhaps looked at it again and think, I still don't quite get what this is saying here. That question might roll around your mind, what does that mean? Uh, So over the next 10 weeks, um, we will be looking at sort of these passages. People have sent them in. I've got about probably seven or eight or so that have come in. Uh, So if you've still got some others, please uh, let me know about them. And then we'll uh, put them together as we will today, just over the next few weeks. Sort of looking at this and say, what does that mean? Today's passage uh, is from the Book of Judges. But before I get there, um, who can remember back to 1987? Uh, when Bob Hawke, during an election campaign, made this big promise, that by the year 1990, no child will be living in poverty. There's a few hands going up. Not looking for any political um, persuasions there, but that was a big promise that Bob Hawke made, that no child shall be living in poverty by the year 1990. This became one of those massive folklore promises that went down through the ages. It's sort of just, you know, this is this big statement. Uh, It became famous because ultimately Bob Hawke didn't fulfil that election promise, perhaps like a lot of other political election promises as well. He didn't. Here we are today, 31 years later, from that point in time, and uh, there's still children living in poverty. Now, this isn't unusual for people to make these promises or to make these vows, particularly politicians, Uh, We do make these big statements of time and sometimes they're like over the top vows or promises that we couldn't possibly fulfill or really they just are something that is way uh, beyond what we could possibly do. Today we're going to look at perhaps a a big vow that the uh, man Jephthah makes in the book of Judges and it's quite a challenging one as we think about it. So if you've got your Bibles, go to the book of Judges. Some of you may be turned there for the first time ever in your life, I hope not. The book of Judges is a part of the Bible. It's there for us to learn and grow in, and it's a great book. Judges 11, and uh, we'll read verses 1 to 11, then we'll read verses 29 to 40 to try and help us get an idea here of uh, this particular section of God's Word. (coughs) Verse 1, now Jephthah the Gileadite, Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Tob, not Todd. <laughs> and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight with the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. And across to verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites... Shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aroah to the neighbourhood of Mineth, twenty cities, as far as Abel Kirimim, with a great blow. The Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dancers. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become of a cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Father, thank you today as we uh, come and gather around this uh, challenging piece of Scripture. Uh, Lord, there is really good things for us here to see, so I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll help us to see that, not to be caught up in the controversy but to get a picture of the big story that's really happening here. And that is the redemptive story of God's grace. Please help us to see that today as we look at the story of Jephthah and this uh, vow that he made. God, we ask that now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. (coughs) We start this series, what does that mean? Because we want everybody here at Exchange to be engaged daily with their Bibles. It's our desire and prayer. That the Holy Spirit would inspire us all to read and hear God's word. To hear God speak to us directly. Because it's here in the Bible that we hear God's voice most clearly to us. It's here that we see God reveal himself through the scriptures. It's here that we see what's wrong with us, what's wrong with this world as we look at the Bible. We we see what God has done to make us right again and to restore us through the scriptures. And it's also here that we find through the Bible how God requires us to live now in worship before him. So the Bible's really, really important. So we're doing this series because sometimes you do come across these passages. What does that mean? We also understand, though, that the Bible is a many thousands of years old book. It's not something written last week. It's something that's actually still applicable to us today, but it's something that's very, very old. It's written across many, many cultures and many, many times And also different genres or writing styles through the Bible as well. You'll see a whole range of things when you come to read the Bible. The Bible contains poems and wisdom writings. The Bible contains songs. The Bible also contains instructional writings through letters. The Bible contains genealogy writing. You'll see this one begat this one begat this one. It's got that. You'll see the Bible contains history and parables. And the Bible contains a lot of narrative or story writings as well. The Bible's also written in languages that we no longer use today in the world. There's a whole lot of complexities here with the Bible when we look at that. But all of this combined together makes the Bible actually a miracle of literature, a miracle of writing when we think about that. Because for all those differences and all those different writing styles and for all those languages that are not used any longer, for all those thousands of years it was written across, the Bible's one story. The Bible is one story. The, story. the story is all about God's salvation of a fallen humanity through Jesus Christ, his son. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, it is one story. It contains lots of stories in there, but there's one overarching story that covers all of scripture. But having said that, some passages of the Bible are hard to understand. Some stuff we just don't get. Or if we don't know how to read our Bibles carefully, some stuff is downright confusing. We read something and it either makes no sense at all or we think surely God couldn't condone that action. Surely God couldn't okay what that person's done and we get confused sometimes. We come away perplexed or mystified. I don't get it. Nobody on earth ever has or ever will fully and totally know and understand God's word. This will never happen. We will never be able to get somebody here who can just read this and say, I've got it. I've actually got it all contained there." That won't happen. There will be some parts, actually, that will be a bit mystified to us. And at best, we may have our best guess at what that means. And it's okay for that to be like that. It's okay uh, in that sense for some stuff not quite to, quite, you know, understand or work out. But for those sort of things that we don't quite work out, generally that will be things that aren't pertaining to, say, what's important to know about the gospel for our salvation. When it comes to stuff in the Bible about our salvation, that's really critical that we get that crystal clear. So if there is something that we don't understand, it's probably going to be an incidental thing that doesn't really matter that much in the concern of the gospel and what's, um, what I'm saved by. The stuff, though, that is difficult in the Bible that we do want to try and look at, though, we want to actually try and deepen our knowledge in him as we work through it, which will help us deepen in our love for Christ and also deepen in our worship for him as well. As, as well, Jephthah's vow is one of those difficult passages. It is one of those challenged ones. Jephthah makes a vow to God to offer up the first person that comes through his door after the battle against the Ammonites as a burnt offering. In other words, a human sacrifice is what he's talking about in that vow. That's the challenge for us when we think about that. Is, is that what it really means? As we think about that today, the first thing we need to perhaps help us to understand what is taking place in this very perhaps complicated book of Judges in some way is to get the context of the book of Judges. What's it all about? Why is it written? The book of Judges is a historical narrative style of writing. It's, it's recording the history of Israel. It's a record of the nation of Israel after their leader Joshua has died and he has led them into the promised land. They're now conquering these uh, lands and peoples that are there. This is God's promised land for the nation of Israel. It's they've, they've arrived in the land of milk and honey, as you might see that as you read through the Old Testament, God's abundance. They've struggled their way through the wilderness for 40 long years and they've seen some pretty crazy stuff happen out there and it's like they've come over the top of the mountains and they've now landed on the Gold Coast beaches of Queensland. It's the land, it's the promised land, it's the land of milk and honey. That's what it is. But Israel are a people at this time who are totally ruined in the context of the book of Judges by ease and abundance. They lose sight of God and they just indulge in the good life. They're ruined by all this ease and abundance they're now in. And part of this ruin here in the book of Judges is they are led into a reckless and godless living. They do some pretty crazy stuff. They show very little restraint and they absolutely fall morally um, away to a very degrading view of humanity. This is the scene here or the picture here of Judges. And perhaps one verse, which is said a few times in the book of Judges, this happens to be the last verse, Sums up what Judges is all about. And it's Judges twenty one, twenty five, and it says this In those days, so in the days of the Judges, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Gives us a picture here of what Judges is about. In Israel, in those days, it was every man for himself, and do whatever feels good for you. That's the backdrop here we see in the book of Judges. Israel's in a state of perhaps moral chaos at this particular time because they're just doing whatever feels good to them. And this picture in Judges also gives us here is Israel keeps rocking back and forth from either captivity and plunder by other nations around about them. God rescues them and they go back into times of good and plenty. They're sort of going between these two sort of um, pendulum swings. Israel cries out, when they're in deep trouble and then God graciously steps in time and time again and he raises up these judges or saviours for them in these times of captivity and they're delivered from this pain and misery and they say thank you very much only to fall back into their old ways again really really quickly sometimes as soon as they get comfortable they forget about God again and this cycle just keeps happening in the book of Judges it just keeps happening spins around and around so that's the backdrop for judges here. It's sort of like the wild, wild west. It's sort of crazy times here. And they're going through this massive pendulum swing of chaos to order. In steps, Jephthah's story. This brings us now to him as God raises him up as a judge for the nation of Israel. Uh, in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, you sort of see a bit of introduction here. The Ammonites have come out to war with Israel. And what we see here is that Israel is looking for a leader. They're looking for someone who can rise up and lead them and command them in this battle. And then we get to Judges 11 and we see Jephthah introduced here as the uh, the writer of the Judges brings it in. In verse 1 he tells us he's the son of Gilead. He's a mighty warrior. So he's actually got some skills here to actually lead. But Jephthah is conceived when Gilead has a one night stand with a prostitute. So there's a bit of unfaithfulness already, showing some of the moral chaos in Israel. And uh, he's conceived in a one-night stand with a prostitute. Gilead does the right thing, though. He brings this boy home into his family, brings it back, and then raises this uh, young fellow up. Gilead has a wife, though, and she has other sons we see in verse 2. When they grow up, they all gang up on Jephthah and say, you're out. There's an inheritance coming to us, and we don't want to share that with you. Actually, we want you right out of this family. So he's rejected. He's kicked out of the family, and he's gone. They don't want anything to do with Jephthah at all. Verse 3, as he's rejected by his family, he runs for his life. He's probably doing raids here and there, and that's what he does. Then in verses 4 to 11, we see Israel, as it were, eating humble pie. They sort of come crawling back to Jephthah and say, please, can you come and help us and lead us and deliver us? Uh, from this Ammonites as they come and mount on our border and they want um, war. They know he's a mighty warrior, he's skilled, living in this particular way. So they come crawling back to Jephthah, please, please come for us. But Jephthah says, what's going on guys? You hated me and you kicked me out. You made me get on the run for my life and go. Is this some sort of trap where you're trying to lead me back and now you're going to finish me off once and for all? He's a bit unsure what they're doing. But he does come back after they make an assurance and oath before God that if he comes back, if Jephthah does come back, they will make him the leader of their nation. He does. And they do, do that, and they, he becomes now the leader of the Israelite nation. Jephthah gets straight to work with delivering Israel. I didn't read these verses, but there's another part there where he actually has this diplomatic approach to the Ammonites. He's trying to actually talk them around to, you know, with a with whole idea of what God gave the Israelites and what this happened there. And he tries to, you know, diplomatically avert this war, but that doesn't work. The Ammonites want no part of it. And if Jephthah ends by saying, God gave this land to us, you go get your God, Ammonites, Chemosh, to give you your land. They don't like that either. And then Jephthah finally closes with this in verse 27 of Judges 11. I therefore have not sinned against you. And you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of uh, Ammon. So there's the picture we have of Jephthah up to this point in time. And the Ammonites won't have any of this. They just want war. They just want war. The war is on as far as they're concerned. So uh, Jephthah leads um, Israel into that. And he goes into verse 29 of uh, Judges 11, And the Spirit of the Lord went upon Jephthah. So the Holy Spirit of God is now, as it were, clothed, come upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. He gathers them for war, and that's exactly what he does. There's heaps in that long passage we didn't read, though, that tells us that Jephthah had a really good knowledge of God. He had a good understanding of the Old Testament books, particularly the ones up to that point in time which would have been uh, perhaps Genesis to um, Deuteronomy. You would have had a good understanding of what was taking place there. Jephthah goes to war against the Ammonites and God delivers them into his hand. Verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. So he's actually subdued this foreign nation and uh, done them in. So here's Jephthah's story so far. He's a strong, mighty warrior. He's the son of a prostitute. He's rejected by his family and he's run out of town and he's probably suffering all sorts of insecurity at this this particular time living like that. The Israelites have recalled him back. Lead us. Please lead us. But it's here, it's here where the story takes a real twist. For some reason... Jephthah goes on to say this crazy, crazy rash vow, and we see that there in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 11. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, "If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering." And if we follow that story through as we did before, when Jephthah comes home, the first thing that greets him coming out through his door is his daughter, is his daughter. So according to this vow that he's made, he now must offer her up as a burnt offering or human sacrifice to fulfil this vow. If only the story ended at verse 32... And the Lord gave the Ammonites into the hand of Jephthah. If only it ended there. But it doesn't end there. It goes on. The writer of Judges actually takes up the next 11 verses purely to talk about this vow, which is really interesting because he's trying to say something to us. He's trying to show us something here in this. Now, for us, it's perhaps really confusing what is going on here that he would talk about this. But he takes 11 verses to focus in upon this crazy, rash vow. And the million-dollar question, I guess, that we get out of that next 11 verses, what's happened to Jephthah's daughter? What happened to her? As you and I read this passage, it reads like she was sacrificed, doesn't it? It reads like that. Because it says there in verse, uh, verse 39, At the end of two months, she returned, that's Jephthah's daughter, to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. That's how it reads. And this is what really troubles us when we see this. We get perplexed by that. Could that really have happened? Could God really condone that? This question sort of nearly jumps straight in your mind as you read this story. It's the bit that stops us. On my Bible software at home, um, I have about nine commentaries on the book of Judges. Uh, And they're all balanced, and they're all careful to examine the text really thoroughly to try and actually approach from many different angles and try and say, hey, this is how it looks. Seven of those nine commentaries indicated that it looks like Jeff Dar carried out this act. Really good, well-balanced commentaries said that. Seven of nine said it looks like Jeff Dar carried out this act and sacrificed his daughter. Two commentaries offered another alternative, which was they saw that she was never able to marry. That was how two saw it out of the nine that I've got. For what it's worth, as I was reading through and thinking about what these commentaries have said... And sort of reflecting over this passage and trying to take in the whole book of Judges as I thought about that. I fall on the side that Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter. That's how I see it. And for a few reasons here, before you go and offer me up as a burnt offering, perhaps for what i just said. For a few reasons I go there as I think about that. First, this is how it reads when you first go through it, isn't it? It sort of reads like that. It reads like he did actually fulfill that vow. Because that's why it stops us in our tracks, and we reread. Because it looks—that's exactly how it looks—that he did carry this out. It reads like he did sacrifice her. Secondly, the author takes a lot of time here to highlight this vow. It's like he wants to make a point of this. There's something he's trying to show us here. Because if purely it was just that she never got married, well, what's the big deal with that? I know some ladies might say, "I really want to get married." But really, what's the big deal if you don't get married? There's not perhaps a big point over that. It's more significant, though, if we accept the fact that Jephthah actually did sacrifice her, that we stop and ask ourselves, what's going on here that this has happened? Because if you were to think about the book of Judges, it really does fit in with this crazy thing that Jephthah has done in the overall context of the whole book. If you read through the book of Judges... You will find some really crazy stories. If Hollywood discovered the book of Judges, they would make some pretty amazing movies out of it. It's some pretty hair-raising stuff there that you read through the book of Judges. And I think, and I think, what the author is trying to do is show us the flawed people that God chose to use as saviours, as people to rescue his nation. It's a crazy, rash vow from a flawed, imperfect person in Jephthah. There's actually no need for this vow. He doesn't have to say this at all. The Spirit of the Lord has already come upon him. He can just go out now in that power and conquer as God has given to him. But what is Jephthah doing really in trying to bargain with God? Like, God, if you do this, give me the Ammonites, I'll go and do this. Sacrifice my daughter. Who holds God, as it were, over a bargaining table like that? You know, like, if you do this, God, I'll go do that. Nobody holds God to a bargaining table. This is what I think the Holy Spirit has in mind then when we read this. He wants us to see a flawed person in Jephthah and the way God uses flawed people for his purposes. Now, it's okay if you disagree with me, we'll still be friends. We'll still be friends. Because what we believe about this vow, as I said before, won't affect our salvation. It's not not central to the gospel, as it were. But you see, though, if we take this first view that he did sacrifice her, this troubles us. And we ask ourselves, how could God then use a person like this? How could God use someone like Jephthah who goes and sacrifices his daughter? Isn't God, as it were, condoning what he's doing by allowing this to be in the scriptures and ask for, for us to read it? Do we not think, maybe God's condoning this? You see, these types of passages, as it were, become like cannon fodder for people trying to shoot holes in the Bible. Someone like um, Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or someone like that will, will read this and say, There you go. Your God's a child sacrifice. He condones child sacrifice. And this is exactly the passage they'll pull out. Someone who wants to try and poke holes in the Bible. And they, they won't see this picture here in its big context. Firstly, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God condones it. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God condones it. The author of Judges is giving us the details of how the people were back then. He's actually giving us this raw view of life. He's actually showing us just how people were, just how corrupt they were, and just how flawed they were. This is here the the backdrop of judges. And Jephthah, what he did was a rash, stupid, and cruel thing. No need for it, but he went and did it. And God doesn't condone it. God doesn't condone it. There's nowhere in this passage at all where we can see God calling Jephthah and make sure you make, you offer up your daughter because you said you would. Or Jephthah, I'll only give the Ammonites to you if you sacrifice it. There's nowhere in the passage at all that God's actually condoning this. He's not telling in any way for Jephthah to do that. Well, then you might say, well, why is God so silent here? Why doesn't somebody intervene and stop him doing this stupid thing? Where's the intervention here? Why is God so silent? Well, God's already spoken about child sacrifice in Jephthah's time. He's already made it very clear. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 10 says this, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. That's written prior to Jephthah. Now, with all the other stuff that he was quoting previous in this passage, he had an accurate history of what God was doing. He would have been very, very well aware of this. So God's already spoken. There's no condoning of God's actions here, of Jephthah's actions by God. God's not silent. God's already spoken. And you might say, well, then why did he go ahead and do it? Why could he do such a stupid thing? Who knows? I guess we're getting a picture here that he's a flawed person and he's suffering from sin. Who knows really why he, what might have else contributed to this tragic veil in his life. But the veil was a disaster. It was a disaster. The next question that comes to our minds then is, what does that mean? We read that. And we say, okay, what does that mean for me now? I'm reading this perhaps 3,000 or more years later, 3,500 years later, and I'm reading this tragic story and I'm trying to say, okay, Holy Spirit, you've, you've inspired that in the book of Judges and I'm to see something now in that and to work that into my life today. What is it? What is it? What we have to see is the Holy Spirit intends us to learn from this. We can't jump around these passages and just sort of disregard them. We've got to learn from these passages. We must stop and think, what is the Spirit teaching me here as I read that? Firstly, we don't bargain with God. We don't come before God with some sort of, you know, bargaining chips about, oh, be in some sort of position at the negotiating table with God and, you know, God, if, if you can do this for me, well, then I'll do that for you trying to sort of, you know, some sort of vow of bargaining or something I can sort of twist God's arm up his back because he really might want what I'm going to give to him if he gives to me what I want. We don't do that. Some people could be like this, like, God, if you give me a wife, if you give me a wife, I'll go to the mission field and I'll serve you there. If you just give me a wife, then I'll go to the mission field. That can be sort of a vow or a promise that people make. But they've probably got no intention at all or any driven desire to go to the mission field. They just sort of Say this rash thing like, God, if you give me a wife, I'll go to the mission field. That's like a rash vow. If you've got no mission drive desire within you at all, you're saying something you'll never probably fulfill. In a rash moment, we'll nearly do anything or say anything to get God to give us what we want. That's what happens. We don't do that. We don't bargain like that. As God's people, we must simply uh, let our yes be yes and our no be no. Uh, in Matthew 5, 33, 37, you can, you can look at that later. Uh, it's this picture here where have got Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the swearing on the temple. He said, you don't do any of that. You just let your yes be yes and you let your no be no. You don't have to make these rash vows or promises that are either impossible to fulfill or they are sinful to carry out. You don't do that as God's people. Now, a promise or a vow is okay to make. That's not saying don't make any promises or any vows. But the whole idea of making a promise or making a vow is a view that God's providence rules this world and we're completely under his sovereign control and there are millions of things outside of my control that I can't do. So if I'm going to make a promise or a vow to somebody, it'll look like this. I promise kids to set a really godly example before you to the best of my Holy Spirit-given ability. And when I fail, I will ask your forgiveness. There's nothing wrong with that promise. It's okay to do those ones. Secondly, here's something else we pick up, I think, out of this passage as we we, uh, reflect about it and look at it in our lives. We must see in Jephthah that God graciously uses flawed people for his sovereign purposes. God uses people from challenging backgrounds of all sorts of dysfunctional circumstances. Think about Jephthah, rejected by his family. He's run out of town. Imagine how he's feeling about that. His birth mother is a prostitute, is considered a scum back in those days. He's probably a very messed up, broken down individual. He's rolling with a bunch of rejected outcasts in the land of Tob, living in caves and in secrecy. Doesn't sound like a really great life, does it? Sounds like a pretty dysfunctional life. If the world was to look at him, what would the world say about him? He's a nobody. He's a reject. He's an outcast. He's good for nothing. That's how the world would sort of look at that. But what does God do here? God takes this flawed, broken down, dysfunctional, messed up Jephthah and uses him as a saviour for Israel. Amazing. And even as God is using him, he's still doing crazy things. Like making crazy vows. Even though God's still using him. And you see, this is the other great theme that runs through the book of Judges that we need to take in as we think about this story. That God, in His grace, intervenes in our lives to rescue and save us despite our flawed personalities. That's what we have to see here in the book of Judges when we see stories like this. Read through Judges and you'll see that time and time again. Just prior to this, you'll read about Samson, he's a womanizer. But God uses him to to save Israel. Uh, Gideon, he actually is used of God, but he actually dabbles in idolatry as well. God uses him to save Israel. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, was a murderer. God used him. King David is an adulterer and a murderer. God uses him. Come to the New Testament. Paul the Apostle. He's an executioner. When the Christians are being killed, Paul's putting his hand up. Yep, kill them. He's actually going out and running about and bringing them in so they can be killed. God uses him. God takes flawed, imperfect people full of dramas and uses them for his glory. Think about this from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's Jephthah. That's any one of us who are putting our faith and our trust in Christ. And we follow Jephthah through. This is what we see here in this massive faith chapter of Hebrews 11. As a man who trusted in God for his salvation. Hebrews 11 says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Here he is. He turns up in Hebrews chapter 11. Of David and Samuel and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. So there he is, a flawed character written in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of the Bible. It's like the Hall of Fame when it comes to faith people. It's important here... That also that we see that Jephthah was a type of saviour that God raised up. A type. He's a shadow. He's a shadow of what the real saviour would be like. And who the real saviour would be. Because Jephthah is ultimately pointing us towards Jesus Christ. This is a shadow and a type that God has raised up. God all along has planned for his son to come and to be the flawless and perfect rescuer of our souls. And Jephthah was a forerunner who directs us towards Jesus despite all of his flaws and failures. No human being that God had raised up at all could save us because we're all flawed and we're all failures until Jesus Christ comes along. Because he's flawless and perfect. He made no crazy rash vows. Jesus only spoke what God the Father had told him to say as we see in John chapter 12. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus only spoke the truth and promised what he and the Father are committed to doing. And he made right vows and right promises and stands right beside them. You see, Jesus is a better saviour than Jephthah would ever be. Jesus didn't nominate someone else to be the burnt offering. Jesus becomes the burnt offering for us. He's a better saviour. Is what God was trying to show us in that. And what Jesus said and did would make Jephthah, who was a flawed person and a failure, to become righteous and acceptable before God. He's not acceptable because of his conquering the Ammonites. And he's certainly not acceptable because of his sacrifice of his daughter. But because of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done, that a flawed and failure like Jephthah can be righteous and acceptable before God. Because Jesus on the cross said this, he made this promise. He said, It is finished. It is finished. That's the promise that Jesus made. It's not rash and it's not crazy. That's a promise that gives life to the brokenhearted, that's a promise that gives life to those who are flawed and imperfect. He says, my sacrifice is finished. All of your imperfections, all of your flaws are washed away because I'm the perfect saviour that can do that. That means all of Jephthah's flaws and failures are washed away at the cross. All of our flaws and failures are washed away so that now we can be made right by Christ. See, this is the story. This is the focus of the story of Jephthah is to see God's redemptive work taking place in this narrative. It's not the intrigue about the rash vow; It does give us intrigue, but we're not going not to get locked down on that. We're actually going to get a step above that and look at the bigger story here, and that is the redemption that God shows, ultimately through Jesus Christ, reflected somewhat in the life here of Jephthah. Jephthah is all about God's redemption story of broken, flawed people like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks and praise today as we just uh, reflect on this passage. Challenging in many respects, Lord, with the things that are in there. But Lord, as we step back and take a larger view of the scripture, we don't get lost in the intrigue of the sacrifice of the daughter. Lord, we, we know you don't condone it. We know it's wrong. But Lord, what we do see is we see your redemptive purposes in the bigger picture. God, you are taking flawed, broken people, full of failure, full of imperfections, and you are raising them up in the Old Testament to be saviours. And today, Lord, you're raising up as flawed, broken, dysfunctional, imperfect people, and you are rescuing us and you're saving us through the perfect saviour, your son. Please, Holy Spirit, help us to see that today as we think about this story here in Judges. God, we ask that now and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul's going to lead us around the communion table. So um, if I can get a couple of guys. Kirk, could you do that? And uh, Jerry, could you grab one of the communion trays, mate, and hand them out for us? That would be really helpful. Just grab the microphone there. Just there. Yep, pull it off. You pull it off.
1: Good morning. The first thing, I have two, two questions that we've looked at through here is, why is it important to receive the supper and why should we do it together and often? In the Anglican prayer book, the words of the priest often used to introduce the supper are these. We who are many are the body of Christ for all we share in one bread. Come, let us take this holy sacrament for the blood and the body of Christ in remembrance that he died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So there's the truth. And as Todd's been uh, preaching in Philippians, uh, we hear that as well. So Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We need this to do this together because um, that is the effect of the gospel. It makes us who are many, one. We are one only in Christ. The gospel is all about sharing together and partaking together. Forever and the Lord's Supper is a taste of this togetherness. So what is good? We all together share in God's riches. God's riches that are seen fully in the glory and found only in Christ This is the truth and why we need to do this together Not in secret and just not on our own Because if we are in Christ Then it shows our unity of God with God and with one another The second matter of why we do this about, is about feeding on him It's a metaphor. We don't literally eat the flesh or or drink his blood. This is an extreme way of thinking. Nor is just a memorial. We are to feed on him in our hearts by faith. There is something really happening when we crunch this cracker and drink the juice. We all accept we are unworthy of God's grace. We We see only Jesus is the worthy one. Who takes away the guilt and shame and gives us his righteousness. This is what grace is all about. The word grace can be used, can be, the word grace can be spelled out this way, which is grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We, we receive this by faith. We believe. This is not something unreal, but very real and present as we participate. The Holy Spirit works in us, reminding, reminding us, teaching, affirming, encouraging us to accept his grace. That is why we need to do it often. It helps us together receive his grace and be thankful for this is a proper response for the gospel. Let us pray a short prayer before we receive. Please bear your heads. Lord, help us feed on Jesus by faith and be thankful. Keep us in Christ and believing you will supply every need according to your riches in glory, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Let us together take this. Reminder, the cracker, now broken and given to you. Take it, eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Let us take, take this juice in reminder and pour it out for many. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Now, Amen.
0: Just as the musicians come back up, um, happy to take any questions. Not now, but after the service, if you want few, any questions about the passage. Please.